It should be noted that this episode is a continuation of our previous episode, The Dark Knight of Sidonia Rises, Richard C. Hoagland. If you have not already listened to that episode, then this episode might be a little confusing, so I highly recommend that you now go back and listen to the episode, The Dark Knight of Sidonia Rises, Richard C. Hoagland. For those of you who already have listened to it, enjoy the episode. Chelsea, have you heard about Cop City? <laughs> no, but I, I don't think I do. It, it's a good <laughs> okay, topic starter. Okay. Yeah, okay. no, you, yeah, of course you okay. do. Okay. It's a weird story out of Atlanta that I think more people should know about. So if this just happens to kind of fill you in on what's going on, I think it's good. So I found an article just to kind of give an overview. It was on The Guardian. If it doesn't come up in this article, basically what it is, is the police have decided that they need a training facility. It's going to be 70 acres large. They're going to destroy an old growth forest to build it. And they're just basically going to build a mock Atlanta so they can practice working with SWAT teams and bombs. Okay, this sounds weird. Yeah, it was slated to go in last year, despite the fact that 70% of Atlanta disproves of this plan. Yeah, that sounds about right. Since right about when they said they're going to do it, there's been protests in this forest and tons of people are protesting so that construction companies can't get into there and start building it. Okay. And I think that gives you at least enough background yeah, that seems to right. uh, start going through what's been happening. And if I know anything about people protesting old growth forests, it's that they eventually kick the people out and cut it down or you know the police doing something they want to do ah yes because the police want this training facility at the end of the day this article's on the guardian it came out january 28th so it is very recent it is called georgia is seeking to define cop city protests as terrorism experts say oh my god no this is written by timothy pratt in atlanta when author and environmental movement expert will potter saw the atlanta police chief darren Shearbaum tell a recent press conference quote it doesn't take a rocket scientist or an attorney to tell you that breaking windows and setting fires is not protest it's terrorism end quote he could not believe his ears the problem porter told the guardian is that while you may not have to be a rocket scientist quote the reality is it's been difficult to come to an understanding of what terrorism is and what political violence is for decades end quote Sheerbaum was speaking about a march through midtown atlanta georgia last saturday night that began peacefully only to see several protesters separate and begin breaking windows of businesses and lighting fires to a police car the marchers were protesting cop city an 85 acre 90 million dollar training facility planned for south river forest a wooded area southeast of the city they were also protesting the fatal police shooting of tortaguida tortaguida i'm sorry I, he's from el salvador i believe his name's hard for me to pronounce a fellow activist less than a week earlier on a raid in the atlanta forest where dozens have been tree sitting and camping for more than years and this kid died in a swat team attack on oh the protesters God. if it doesn't come up later i will explain what happened the March arrests of 18 activists charged under a state domestic terrorism law, a series of raids on forests in recent weeks, and Tortugueta's killing have escalated tensions over Cop City. They culminated Thursday afternoon in the Georgia governor, Brian Kemp, declaring a state of emergency under the order up to 1,000 National Guard troops will be available until February 9th or upon further order. These actions have all been matched by a strident rhetoric for police and politicians in Georgia, seeking to define a largely peaceful protest movement, often focused on environmental and racial justice issues and those who participate in it as terrorists. And it should be noted that this forest area is in a predominantly black neighborhood in Atlanta. 
So that's, uh, yeah, that's another part of it that comes up. It has shocked many observers, including Potter, who see a crude attempt to use as powerful tools as possible to crush opposition. Quote, I can't help but think it's to shut the protest down or remove them from the public spotlight. Potter said of Kemp's orders Thursday. Potter has looked at changing federal government approaches to pursuing terrorism charges against environmental activists in his book, Green is the New Red, an insider's account of social movements under siege. These efforts culminated in attempts to charge activists with domestic terrorism during the 2000s on at least 70 occasions, succeeding in only 18 according to a 2018 report by The Intercept. On Saturday night, six activists in Atlanta were arrested and charged with domestic terrorism, bringing the total since December to 18. All have been charged under a Georgia statute, marking the first time the state law has been used this way in the history of the environmental movements in the U.S. On the 18th of January, Tortugueta also became the first environmental activist killed by police in U.S. history, as experts said. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation said Tortugueta, or Manuel Esteban Paz Teran, had shot an officer first, and in recent days has produced photos of a gun and a firearm transaction record that appears to be in Teran's name. The agency charged with investigating Georgia police shootings also said ballistic evidence from the wounds officer matches the gun, and that there is no body cam or other footage of the shooting. And this part pisses me off a lot too. They sent in a SWAT team to try to break up the Cop City protesters. Mm -hmm. None of them were wearing police body cams. Of course they weren't. So this guy got shot. The cops say that he shot at them first, but they have no body cameras to prove what they're saying is true, despite the fact yeah. we know those things exist. And if you think crimes are going to happen or your side of the story might be questioned, you fucking wear those. Yeah. And most of the protesters say they only heard one round of shots, not like back and forth. So protesters don't believe he shot first. Yeah. The rest comes on the heels of at least a year's worth of rising public chorus from Kemp, law enforcement officials, and others using the term terrorist to describe the protesters, even as opposition to the Cop City project has grown since Atlanta City Council approved it in late 2021. Eli Bennett and Joshua Schiffer, two Atlanta attorneys representing some of the activists, both told The Guardian the state statute is overly vague. Four of the 18 cases brought under federal domestic terrorism charges during the 2000s were dismissed due to allegations being too vague. According to the Intercept, it's too easy to abuse, and I strongly have issue with how domestic terrorism is thrown around in the state law, Schiffer said. Arrest affidavits obtained by The Guardian for seven activists arrested 18th of January during the same police raid on South River Forest in which Tortugueta was killed begin by alleging that the defendants were, quote, participating in actions as part of Defend the Atlanta Forest, a group classified by the United States Department of Homeland Security as domestic violent extremists. And I just, again, want to quote what the name of this is, Defend the Atlanta Forest, apparently domestic violent extremists. But a Homeland Security DHS spokesperson responded to a query by The Guardian, quote, the Department of Homeland Security does not classify or designate any groups as domestic violent extremists, adding that the agency also regularly shares information regarding perceived threats to the safety and security of all communities. Meanwhile, a White House bulletin issued early in the Biden administration underlined, quote, the two most lethal elements of today's domestic terrorism threat are one, racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists who advocate for the superiority of the white race, and two, anti-government or anti-authority violent extremists such as militia violent extremists. We're going to give just a blurb of the rest. Broadening definitions and sentencing guidelines arising from these efforts resulted in a situation where, quote, even writing pro-animal slogans on sidewalk in chalk, end quote, could get you charged with terrorism, said Ryan Shapiro, co-founder of Property of People, a national security-oriented nonprofit organization focused on transparency that has released thousands of FBI and CIA documents exposing government overreach. Similarly, Bill McKibben, author of 20 books on climate change and other subjects, wrote this week that according to Georgia's domestic terrorism law, quote, lie down in front of a police car and you're a terrorist who could spend many, many years behind bars. 
bars, end quote. Shapiro shared documents with The Guardian obtained through FOIA, showing that lack of agreement on legal framework around terrorism inhibits DHS's work. The case in Georgia arises from another thread in the recent history of approaches to domestic terrorism, Shapiro noted, quote, the post 9-11 downward creep of national security. Justification has provided local police with counterterrorism powers previously limited to the FBI and other federal agencies, he said. I think I can leave that there. There are more paragraphs. Go take a look if you want. Chelsea, that gives you the gist though, right? Yeah, that is infuriating. And you see that in so many things where there's people protesting things, but you know what? The bigger agency wants it to happen. And so they just find ways to end up taking it. And it's so wrong on so many levels that they're upping essentially the legality of these people to protest something being old growth force. And we see that here over here on Vancouver Island as well, people protesting this and yet they're still tearing these old growth trees down. We've talked about the problem with the power grid being uh, targeted by individuals in the past. And hell, not that long ago, that was at least at the latest on our New Year's episode. One thing I never mentioned in any of those, anybody getting charged as a terrorist for targeting the power grid. But trees, because that's a resource. That just isn't something that does happen, but protecting trees, yes. But as something, a resource that people, you know, want out of the Mm -hmm. way because, I mean, they can use it for other things, but they also want it for land to use to do police scenarios. Like, it's ridiculous. It is. If you want to learn more, uh, Status Coup, Status C-O-U-P on YouTube has actually done a great job talking to people about this issue. And there is a place to donate. So far, these protests are actually done a great job stalling Cop City from getting built, if you're on that side of it, which I am. I believe construction's now eight months behind schedule just because these people won't let them even start. So if they can just keep postponing it, eventually they might actually get something out of this. Yeah, I hope so. I really hope they do. And I want to give you guys all a place to go to donate. It's atlsolidarity.org. You can put it in the episode notes. If you feel like donating to a cause to stop this cop city from being built, atlsolidarity.org. Chelsea, anything else to add? That's so depressing. I don't. It just gives you such a feeling of hopelessness that they're just going to do whatever they want anyway. But they want that feeling of hopelessness, particularly with the people protesting. Yeah. And that's why they're charging them with terrorism to think that their repercussions are going to be far worse than they actually should be. It's disgusting. For protesting. Which they have all the right to. Yeah, they do. And with that, let's get on with this episode. Okay. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, where we find our episode already in progress. Next up, for things he talks about, he really likes to talk about how NASA keeps tons of secrets. Specifically, why they keep the secrets? Well, first off, because it was started by and run by Nazis. That's He brings that up all the time. It's a bit of a half-truth. We've covered this before on Operation Paperclip, Nazis to the Moon. The U.S. did bring over rocket engineers from Nazi Germany after the war. However, NASA started before that, and there were other people involved well before any Nazi involvement started. And he says it's still a Nazi-run thing. It's full of people that have no connections to Nazis now. But that doesn't stop him from talking about it. He also talks about the Brookings Report. Hovland asserts that this report was commissioned by NASA and states the public cannot be informed of extraterrestrial life, whether past or present, as they do not have the capacity to handle this information. This is a partial truth that is incredibly misleading. 
It's a 200 plus page document. In the most interesting sections of the report, the author contemplated the possibility that contact might be made with extraterrestrial intelligence, and they warned that this might not be an unmitigated cause for celebration. This is a quote from the Brookings Report. Anthropological files contain many examples of societies sure of their place in the universe, which have disintegrated when they have had to associate with previously unfamiliar societies espousing different ideas in different life ways. Others that survive such, such an experience usually did so by paying the price of changes in values and attitudes and behavior. That's on page 183 and on page 103. It has been speculated that of all groups, scientists and engineers might be the most devastated by the discovery of relatively superior creatures, since these professions are most clearly associated with the mastery of nature rather than with the understanding and expression of man. Advanced understandings of nature might vitiate all our theories at the very least, if not also require a culture and perhaps a brain inaccessible to Earth scientists. So it did say a few things that would be negatives of finding aliens. It also has positives. Quote on page 183, the knowledge that life existed in other parts of the universe might lead to a greater unity of men on Earth based on the oneness of man or on the age-old assumption that any stranger is threatening. Much would depend on what, if anything, was communicated between man and the the other beings. So it's an over 200 page document that he breaks down to humans would freak out if we saw aliens. So NASA's not allowed to tell us there's anything there's no about effect. aliens and they, yeah. they hide it. They specifically hide yeah. it. And I saw the argument against why that's stupid in that if NASA found evidence of alien life, their budget would absolutely balloon. Like they would get so much more money to investigate this life. So why would they still be hiding? Uh, there's a lot of things. Well, I've seen like a half hole in his story so far. Well, and that's he finds. If I was me, he's one of these guys who finds half truths and elaborates on them to the point where you can't say he's fully lying. He's just taking things out of context or in a way they're not it's, meant yeah. to be, or misunderstanding it entirely. I wouldn't even say it's like a half truth. It's like you can't say it's wrong, but the way he's interpreting it is wrong. But if you called him out on it, you'd say, well, it says it in the Brookings report, and he would technically be right. But I feel like anywhere he's going is specifically not letting him get called out. They're just letting him go on. Oh, yeah. And he tends to dominate conversations. If you ever see a show with him, he's leading it to where he wants it to go. And he's almost taking his intellect and holding it over the host and saying, look how much smarter I am. I'm actually going to teach the host what's going on. Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily call that intellect. Yeah, I listen to a lot of podcasts to get in the mood for this, and he does this a lot. I wouldn't call it intellect. It's more just, you know, he has a big ego. having that charisma and ego to be able to steer the conversation even when you're wrong, because he clearly isn't smarter than most of these people because he has no idea. And I wish I could really find some, like, comments from the guy who hired him at the, his first curator gig, or from the media who hired him as their science advisor and like see like do you regret it why did this relationship end and like what actually happened to get it there yeah and what drew you to him to want to hire him but we'll talk about that in a bit that's unfortunately like it was in the 60s so it was before the internet there's not a great record of it and then everybody that's really involved in that and higher than that him is dead because he's in his late 70s Next up, yeah. he talks about torsion fields. This came up in the Sidonia thing, his idea of hyperphysics. 
and that there's basically an endless supply of free energy that can be tapped into from the fourth dimension. This comes right from the Rational Wiki on his views of torsion fields, and so I'm just going to read right from it. Rational Wiki is fantastic because it is very partisan, and I'm just going to read it word for word as it shows up because I find it hilarious. That's what we need right now, I feel like. What does he say about torsion fields? The idea, bracket, it does not amount to a theory, close bracket, is that massive objects rotating at high speed Speed, create torsion fields that propagate through space and interact with any matter they pass through. Changing that matter is inertia. Hoagland stole this idea from, or was inspired by, the amateur scientist Bruce De Palma on his website. Hoagland explains as follows. De Palma, since the 1970s, has been carrying out perhaps the most exhaustive laboratory studies of, quote, bodies in motions, end quote, including massive objects over 30 pounds, spinning at very high velocities, around 7,600 revolutions per minute, that I had ever seen. He had thereby accumulated an extensive experimental database on a subject not normally dealt with in mainstream physics or mechanics, rotation. De Palma proposed as a result of his wide-ranging rotations experiments that, quote, rotating masses, end quote, in general, set up some kind of hitherto unrecognized, quote, inertial field, end quote, in their vicinity. Bracket, the more widely used term for this field now, because of how it's assessed, is a, quote, torsion field, unquote, because torsion means literally rotation, close bracket. Massive objects include distant planets and even the sun. Hoagland has extended the idea to stating without proof that large pyramids amplify this effect. Hmm. On Red Ice Internet Radio in February of 2013, Hoagland stated, quote, the predictions of this model are overwhelmingly confirmed, end quote. This statement is bullshit, crossed out, an exaggeration. The fact is that this, quote, model, unquote, is loosely defined and he has never made a specific enough prediction to test it. <laughs> Although he has said repeatedly that he has measured the torsion field, and he has never stated any actual measurements or even said what units the fields will be measured in. Neither has he ever stated the mathematical relationship between the frequency of the torsion field and that of the Accutron, which is the device he uses to measure it. So he has an experimental apparatus that he uses to measure it. His experimental apparatus consists of a Bulova Accutron wristwatch hooked up to a precision frequency center, which is in turn cabled to a laptop computer, which displays the exact frequency of the watch's tuning fork as a function of time. He likes people to think he rigged this all up himself, but in fact, the microset sensor and software were supplied by Brian Mumford of Mumford Microsystems and the computer hookup was done for him by Bill Alec. Hoagland, together with his former companion, the homeopathist Robin Falkov, has taken this equipment to Mexico, Florida, and the UK to test the idea, usually taking it to some massive stone structure at the time of an eclipse or transit. In every case, he has proclaimed the results stunning or astonishingly confirmatory. Yeah. And after the abortive expedition to Mauna Kea in May of 2013, he said the technology can save the planet. However, quite apart from the shakiness of the underlying idea, there are a number of very grave problems with the protocol and data interpretation. He calls his sorties experiments, but as science, they are unconvincing to put it mildly. And on his radio show on April 1st, 2018, he announced that he had broken the device. I made a mistake the other day and dropped the damn <laughs> thing on a hardwood floor. It obviously has incredible fine wires it broke. He appealed for donations to pay for repairs, but there's no sign that this very small audience coughed. <laughs>
All that about tracks with everything we've heard so far. The whole thing, not just dropping. <laughs> this next one I find hilarious because it just gives you the mindset that he has and the trouble that we're seeing with him, particularly with stealing other people's ideas. So this comes from an article titled The Face Behind the Face on Mars, a skeptical look at Richard C. Hoagland by Gary P. Posner. So Hoagland told an audience on July 13th, 1990 that, quote, Carl, I'm going to add in here Sagan because that's who they're talking about for many years has been taking public credit for the Pioneer Plaque, which of course, Eric Burgess and I conceived. The Pioneer Plaque is basically a piece of gold plated material that we sent into space on the Pioneer space probes because it went off outside of our solar system. We said, hey, wouldn't it be neat if this is the first thing that if we actually, it runs into aliens, they actually see this and they can learn about us. You can find it online. Richard Hoagland did this? He says he did. Carl, for many years, has been taking public credit for the Pioneer plaque, which, of course, Eric Burgess and I conceived. On a broadcast later that year on November 16th, he added that oh, Carl was involved with Eric Burgess and me in the design of the message, end quote. Then in the publisher's forward to the Monuments of Mars, he, we find this message. Among Hoagland's most valued contributions to history and science is the conception, along with Eric Burgess, of mankind's first interstellar message in 1971. An engraved plaque carried beyond the solar system by the first man-made object to escape from the sun's influence, Pioneer 10. Hoagland and Burgess took the idea to Carl Sagan, who successfully executed it aboard the spacecraft and acknowledged their creation in the prestigious journal Science. When I inquired of Carl Sagan as the precise nature of Hoagland's role in the creation and design of the Pioneer 10 plaque, Sagan's reply, September 6, 1990, made it clear that Eric Burgess and Richard Oakland did no more than suggest to me that a message be put aboard Pioneer 10 and 11. Frank Drake and I, of the Drake Equation fame, which we did an episode on as well, with an assist from Linda Sagan, Carl's wife at the time, who prepared the artwork, did the design, and I was responsible for getting it through the NASA and White House approval process. Hoagland did not contribute one bit of data towards the message design, end quote. Yeah, just based on everything we've gone through, I could see him taking credit for that if he did in fact say there should be a message. He was vaguely around it at the time. <laughs> Frank, yeah, that was him, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Frank Drake thing. confirmed Sagan's account. Quote, on September 27th and October 18th, I believe this is 1990, but I don't know for sure. Quote, neither Eric Burgess nor Richard Hoagland contributed any ideas or even suggestion as to what should be on the Pioneer 10 and no suggestion as to any message content. They did point out that Pioneer 10 was going to leave the solar system and it would be nice to put some form of message on. That was as far as the involvement went. I am sure that Eric Burgess would be glad to confirm this. The idea that there should be an engraved plaque and the type of information which should be engraved was developed mutually by Carl and me. I remember very clearly that we started with completely open minds as to what the message should be and without any prior suggestion as to the possible message content, end quote. In a note of acknowledgments, at the conclusion of Sagan and Drake's February 25th, 1972 science article entitled A Message from Earth, they put this, quote, Burgess and Hoagland are credited with the initial suggestion to include some message aboard Pioneer 10, end quote. But as Hoagland acknowledges on page 98 of his own book, it was actually Burgess who first said to Hoagland, it ought to carry a message, end quote. Then on the next line, Hoagland claims that he had already thought of the idea. Yeah, I gotta say, I'm on Richard Hoagland's side at this point. Then, uh, oh. Richard C. Hoagland, though, I'm not sure about yeah. So, quote, that was the unvoiced thought which had been nagging at me ever since I gazed through the craft's thick quartz windows, end quote. So at the end, he's being credited with doing this, the plaque. It turns out that somebody came to him as they're talking and said they should include a message on this. And he's like, oh, yeah, I thought about that the other day. I count as coming up with the idea. <laughs> 
So this guy, Gary, telephones Burgess, who told him the following story. I came up with the idea that the craft carry a message from Earth, and I mentioned it at lunch that afternoon to Hoagland, then a freelance writer, and Don Bain, Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Note also character who didn't say, oh yeah, I thought of that yesterday. Include me in this. And I said that the right man to get this aboard would be Carl Sagan. So I went around to the Jet Propulsion Labs and Hoagland was in tow with me and found Sagan. And I said, hey, Carl, I've got an idea for you. All Hoagland did was support me and say, it's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this guy. And then I have to find, I hope I didn't close this webpage because it is fucking hilarious. I wanted to ask, did you have, this is a while back, a clip of when Art Bell called out that guy? I tried so hard to find him? it, but okay. no, it's lost to time or in the catalogs, which I'm not willing to pay for. No, no, yeah. Oh man, did I close this window? I really hope I didn't. I did, damn it. That's okay. Once you're recently closed. Yeah, I'm going to go to my there. history really quick. This is written by an Andrew Johnson, who is apparently well-known in the 9-11 community. That's the information that he kind of peddles in, the conspiracy side. Okay. Written on April 11th, 2011, is Richard Hoagland on a dark mission. I was interested that on Sunday, April 3rd, 2011, Richard Hoagland gave a presentation in Amsterdam as part of a conference entitled, quote, Secret Space Program, unquote, in August 2010. I was made aware by the organizer, Jerome Van Stratton, that this conference would be happening. At that time, I had spoken to Jerome at the Exopolitics Leeds Conference, where I presented, quote, the case for anti-gravity. This presentation fits directly into the Secret Space Program research area. Jerome did invite me to have a table to distribute some materials there. However, due to certain timing and family commitments, I decided not to attend. I was also grateful to Jerome for offering to display a few copies of my self-published book entitled 9-11 Finding the Truth. Jerome also displayed some DVDs of a TV presentation of myself and Dr. Judy Wood that was done in February of 2009 about the destruction of the World Trade Center. I wish in retrospect that I had decided to attend as I may have been able to question Mr. Hoagland about a number of aspects of what was presented. One might have thought that Mr. Hoagland would present something about his research from his Dark Mission book, co-authored with Mike Barra. However, much of the material that he presented had nothing to do with Dark Mission, what? Mars, Yapetus, or any of those subjects. Rather, the material he presented was primarily about the events of 9-11. What? <laughs> Some readers may know of my special interest in 9-11, as it is the topic I have written about the most on this website, and about which I have the most information posted. Similarly, readers will likely know of my association with Dr. Judy Wood, who has singularly done more than any other researcher to determine what actually happened, and take that knowledge forward into a QUATAM complaint against NIST's contractors for science fraud. The complaint was eventually filed to the US Supreme Court. When I first listened to Hoagland's presentation, I was frankly shocked. For about one and a half hours, he presented some of the catalog of the evidence that Dr. Judy Wood had compiled and made available on her website. Though Mr. Hoagland did reference Dr. Judy Wood's name and made brief mention of her website, it must be pointed out that Mr. Hoagland has never been in contact with either Dr. Wood or myself before or after this presentation. Neither of us had any idea that he would be presenting this research in as much detail as he did. A number of people have already made remarks such as, isn't it fantastic that someone like Richard Hoagland is endorsing Judy Wood's research? Well, this might be true if he was presenting it fairly and accurately. However, as you will see from details discussed below, which we're not going to get into, unfortunately. Oh, damn it. <laughs> 
Mr. Hoagland made a number of serious errors and omissions in his presentation, and had he consulted Dr. Wood or myself, or if he or the organizers had invited Dr. Wood to present this evidence, these mistakes could have been avoided. Both myself and especially Dr. Wood worked very, very hard to get details correct. Science and engineering are nothing without details being correct. Hence, we both felt we needed to point out where there are mistakes in his presentation so we can ensure a true and accurate record of the matters and becoming available to people. So yeah. Oh, shit, this is awesome. I didn't want to go too much because is there anything major that he got wrong i'm sure there is i just wanted to go over the fact that he plagiarized entire just out of nowhere 9 11 presentation and got it wrong that is just what i was looking for i love that for him it's like i love him doing complex math equations that he has no background in doing and at all getting either. belittled he does get belittled by a math professor on it as well he has something called the telephone yeah. problem that he shows him or sends him several times that he refuses to acknowledge by saying like, look, if you just put several telephone numbers together, you can find crazy anomalies and you randomly. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's a crazy fact, by the way. And I'm no mathematician. But does he actually address anyone that says that he's wrong in this? No, insane? they're, they're attacking him with, from no. a political stance. And I actually saw uh, yeah. a few people on the it's podcast. I was listening. He's not going to get it. He's he's above that. Well, and people on the other side don't really want to debate him because he is so long winded and he does what's called a gish gallop where he unloads so much information on you that you can't actually address every single one. And it looks like he wins the argument. Yeah. So it's not even really worth it. And I guess that's where he's gotten where he is. Yeah. But this is hilarious. This is all things that he has no expertise in except making shit up and bullshitting. So really he does has, have expertise then, in it. I don't know if you knew this. I found this out as, as I was researching this episode. It appears he got banned from coast to coast for a while. Would that be why Bob Dylan was doing his report? Robert Zimmerman, yeah, because he wasn't the science advisor anymore. And so How do I remember that? I was looking into it and I was like, wow, that's weird. Why? There's a gap from 2015 to 2022. He's back on. I will say Coast to Coast is famous for picking people off. And if they don't want the publicity about it, they will not address it at all. They will just silently do it. There's other people, however, that George Norrie will not shut up about why he won't have them back. But some of them, they'll secretly do it over, under the radar. Could you find anything? Yeah. And part of it is if they're a big enough deal, they don't want to piss people off. Yeah. So I did find out the reason. Apparently, he really belittled George Norrie a lot in the conversations, or at least George Norrie <laughs> felt belittled. And in the last episode, actually, because it was when New Horizon was on its way to go see Pluto. Richie C was actually set to host an episode of Coast to Coast as it was flying by Pluto and talking about everything that we would be unpacking with it. But before that happened, he got banned. And I found this and it was, oh, what was the website? Can't remember, but this is great. George Norrie's attitude on this episode, the last episode they were on, ran rampant from worship to fury. At one point he said, Richard, you're amazing, Richard. Everything you say comes true in the end. But near the end of their conversation, when talk turned to plans for Hoagland to guest host in July on the occasion of the Pluto encounter, it got a little ugly. Hoagland tried to sandbag Nori on the air by arguing for a five-hour extended show. <laughs> this was obviously something that had already been discussed and rejected, so Nori shut it down in no uncertain terms. 
I tried to find this episode. I could not. Damn it. That was my next question. If anybody was looking for it, it is the June 19th, 2015 episode of Coast to Coast AM. June 19th, 2015. I would love to have had that to put that right here. And after that, there's a seven year hiatus and it sounds fantastically hilarious. Damn it. And that's that thing. He has that ego and it pisses some people off and it gets him to where he is because he also sounds like he knows everything. And George Nori doesn't like to ruffle any feathers so I'm surprised that he actually said sternly no we're not doing that. Yeah and that's actually hilarious too. And then he didn't end up hosting that episode despite the fact he was trying to pump it up. I love it. There's one more thing I wanted to address. There is the Abidos helicopter or the Abidos hieroglyph. You would know the one I'm talking about, Chelsea. It's the hieroglyph that they say looks like a helicopter. It's on like every Ancient Aliens episode. Okay. Richard says he's the one who discovered it or at least thought that it looked like a helicopter. Okay, that's what he says. Yeah, he says he's the one who first um, proposed that it looks like a helicopter. There are many people who say like, no, you're full of shit on that one. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go with yes because... I just want to conclude that one passingly because that's one people might actually recognize as well. Also, people have advice. You can also look at things. So what has Richie C. been up to? He can be found collecting evidence of advanced lost civilizations anywhere anyone ever has taken a picture. You can hear all about it as well as a play-by-play of an old man struggling with technology on his podcast, The Other Side of Midnight. That sounds awful. <laughs> Honestly, his most recent episode includes like him trying to figure her out his computer. It's hilarious. <laughs> What's the opening like? Is there like catchy music or anything? You know, I can't remember. It's not catchy. Oh damn it! If it's not memorable, it's not. he believes the most recent. We talked about this in our year-end update. The Artemis shuttle test found evidence of domes on the moon as well as launch time and times out of communication while on the far side of the moon were picked to make this launch an occult ceremony. Yeah, I thought about that. That was my idea. Okay. He has stated the original Star Wars trilogy are a true story of this previous civilization that he's uncovering evidence of. (laughs) He has said that there is a city on Ceres, the dwarf planet in the asteroid belt, that has one one millionth the gravity of Earth. Okay. I mean, the odds that he's right is probably some odd, you know. (laughs) He also has said that NASA found a, quote, C-3PO head on the moon at some point. Pluto is a vast library left behind by this advanced civilization. There's a 13-kilometer tall constructed wall around Saturn's moon, Iapetus. There is a literal Death Star orbiting Saturn as the moon Mimas, or Mimas. And he is also a big proponent of ancient astronaut hypothesis as conforming to his views of the whole solar system. And then that story that I alluded to earlier about him being in jail for a period of time. This comes from The Emoluments of Mars. It's a a blog from April of 2020, I believe. Jose Calavito, who does for pseudo-history what I do for pseudoscience, evidently tortured himself by listening to the whole three hours of last Sunday's Other Side of Midnight, Richard Hoagland podcast on Blog Talk Radio. Colavito made his review into yesterday's blog, and I enjoyed his digs at pseudo-historian Scott Walter, Hoagland's Sunday night guest and one of Colavito's perennial punching bags. I enjoyed reading that Hoagland called the Utah monolith, now disappeared, a, quote, hyperdimensional tetrahedron. Do you remember those? When, like, those monoliths were showing up in places in, like, early 2020? Yes. Yes. They were hyperdimensional tetrahedron. So, you know, that torsion field. They're meant to gather free energy. Is that the thing he dropped on the ground? Yeah, that's apparently that's what they were. <laughs> okay. And then after that, he put this. Here's another little secret about monuments. This is from likely Richard Grossman, who's posting under the name Hoagland Hoka, who published 
his book, Monuments of Mars, 1987. Here's another little secret about monuments. The only way the damn thing ever got written was that Hoagland went to prison for one of his inexplicable and weird scams. Bracket, ostensibly something about a stolen rental car and a New York planetarium credit card. Whether it really happened or not, as reported, whether it was really a scam or not, and whether he was really guilty or sentenced fairly or not, in the end, he was incarcerated over a New York state warrant that he chose to flee to the Golden State, California, rather than defend in-state. He was apprehended in Berkeley and was stopped for having a cardboard rear license plate, refused to plea bargain, so got housed in LA County Jail for over a year. Admittedly, my version of the story is cobbled out of hearsay from a variety of semi-reliable sources, but it roughly tracks with some of the events that actually happened and he was in jail. That's where I addressed my mail to him regarding the book and he didn't write much of the book. <laughs> Just, I had to add that story. Thank you for that. You did have to add His that. filmography includes E.T. Among Us presents Alaska's Secret Pyramid and the Worldwide Alien Archaeology, UFO Diaries, The Chris Gethard Show, and E.T.'s Among Us, UFO Witnesses and Whistleblowers. And I wanted to end this off with a few Reddit posts that I found that are just fantastic. They were from the Coast to Coast subreddit. I especially love that they call George Norrie the putts or Mr. Putts. Like oh yeah, the Coast to Coast AM Reddit is really good, actually. I enjoy Anybody it. that addresses him as Nori or asks why they do that or what people have wrong with it, their comments are immediately deleted because they get shit on <laughs> so much. I love this one. It's from UFO Girl 1904 uh, It was posted 10 months ago. I knew Richard as we both hit the conference circuit in the late 90s, early 2000s. His confidence is narcissistic. He believes so wholly in his pedigree that no one challenges him. His lectures were a literal sideshow like in a circuit. After seeing him at many conference parties for insiders, I just couldn't handle it. I stayed as far away as possible. At one after party, he was literally holding his wine glass like some kind of English aristocrat. As for his background, it has always been questionable. He has his biggest fan and has a way of making you think he's the smartest guy in the room. The guy wrote the book on the only way to make money in the UFO field back in the day. I'm surprised he's not doing the Ancient Alien Circus show, which many of my colleagues now do. You have to understand, back in the day, making any money off of a lifetime of research was brutal. Now many of them sell out every show or documentary willing to pay. I found that hilarious and definitely conforms to the view that I've formed of Richard Hoagland. I do like that one. And then my personal favorite, this comes from a physics forum, which I'll put the link in the episode description so you can go take a look if you want. One of Hoagland's favorite resume items is his stint as science advisor for Walter Cronkite in the CPS Evening News. It turns out that today is Hoagland's birthday and he was on Coast to Coast AM via telephone. Cronkite called in, of all people. Cronkite first said that he wanted George and all of his listeners to know this. And then he referred to Hoagland's hocus pocus nonsense, his babbling about Mars, <laughs> and that he wished he hadn't been led astray by Hoagland. That Hoagland was probably qualified <laughs> for medical treatment under the CBS insurance plan, and he was glad to be away from him. Cronkite alluded to this all being a joke, but in my opinion, it was no joke. He never said once nice things. I think Cronkite has been <laughs> waiting for this for a very long time. His work with Cronkite is one of Hoagland's most prized claims. It's hilarious. And yeah, that's just some of the fun stuff I found online about him. Very nice curriculum vitae if you don't look into it at all. I think George Santos, the Republican candidate that we talked about in our last episode, could really learn a thing or two about how to properly lie on a CD. 
Oh, no kidding. Chelsea, any final thoughts? I do have some final. I've learned a lot about, I, you know, I don't know how he was never on my, like, he was on my radar of being, like, crazy, but not, like, so crazy. Like, I think part of it David is, Wilcox, but he, I don't think he's ever monetized it in a way that we've noticed. Because his big thing is doing lectures and showing up at the conferences, and he did a book every now and then. True. I think that's kind of why True. he kind of flew under the radar. I think there must be something to what you're saying. But he's earned a spot on here, that's for sure. I've learned a lot. I did not think it would go that way when I first Told doing one. this research. No, I, really I did not expect this. I, that's why I'm saying I learned a lot. Didn't expect a lot of this. I didn't expect it to be so egotistical, which I guess you have to if you're going to push yourself to the level that is. There's not a lot to back it but, up. No, especially without doing any of the usual requirements to do the things you want to. Like, he did no... He's completely fabricated everything out of thin air, even his math skills. And I mean, he is constantly doing math, so there's that. He is the sanest man out It's not... It's not correct math, but he is doing math. So it checks out. Yeah. So I'm impressed. I'm impressed at this level that this episode has served out for us. Yeah. And I, there could be a whole other episode on this guy with all the lies that he's talked about. But I frankly thought I could have fit this onto one episode. It's probably going to end up being the two episodes. Yeah. That really spoke for itself about probably how much more he's lied about. <laughs> gotta. Especially about math. You gotta lie about math. But with that, I hope you guys all enjoyed the two-part 100th episode of Journey to the Fringe. I have been Taylor here with Chelsea talking about UFO assholes as we always wanted. Living our best lives. <laughs> thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week hey thank you for listening to journey to the fringe if you have liked what you have listened to please like share subscribe or follow depending on what venue you are listening to us through also please if possible leave a five-star review as that really helps us in the algorithms should you wish to interact with us please check us out on your social media of choice i bet you we are there and if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible either way please send us an email at journey to the fringe at gmail.com for now i'll see you in the next episode Uh